Well, good evening, my friends, or good afternoon, or good whatever time of day you're listening to this, because, of course, that's the beauty of doing this over a podcast, is that you can listen to this uh, whenever you have the time, whenever you have the availability. Uh, It's one of the reasons I'm doing it, because I think that's going to be much easier for a lot of you to listen in and get in your weekly Bible study. Now, uh, the last week we did this, the, the very first podcast Bible study we had, I gave you uh, an overview of, well, both First and Second Samuel, but kind of mostly First Samuel. You're still reading in First Samuel, although now you're a pretty good chunk of the way through the book. So I will let you know that I'm going to be preaching this coming Sunday on the story of David and Goliath, which is in First Samuel 17. And so what I want to do this week for our Bible study is kind of cover the things that, that have led up to that. And so we'll talk a bit about um, what is going on in Israel at this time. We'll do a little bit on sort of Saul's rise to the throne, uh, as well as a little bit about what leads to Saul's downfall as king. And as we're going through that, we, we've I've mentioned last week, and and you won't have had much of a chance to do this because uh, we're uploading both these episodes at more or less the same time, but I I did mention last week, if you are listening in and you have uh, questions about the Bible, whether those are questions about what we have read uh, in the past week, whether they're questions about things we read way back in January, or parts of the Bible we haven't read yet, or even if it's just a question about the Bible that you have always had, uh, and, and you just have never had a chance to ask it, um, you can send those in to us. You can email me. My email address is forest.divini at hasburycc.org. You can find that on the church website. Uh, you can email those straight to me, or as we post these podcasts up on Facebook, you can just, in the comment section under each Facebook post, you can just post your questions for the following week. But I do have one question that we will answer this week that's going to be Uh, towards the end of what we're talking about. So, let's dive right in. Uh, I'm going to start in 1 Samuel. I want to look at chapters 4 through 7. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, because that would be a lot. Um, (laughs) But we're going to start in 1 Samuel 4. And so, in those days, the Philistines mustered for war against Israel, and Israel went out to battle against them. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle was joined, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord put us to rout today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, so that he may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? 
When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, Gods have come into their camp. They also said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, in order not to become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And just notice, by the way, they're saying gods, plural. Um, right? The Hebrews are the only monotheists in the world at this time. And the Philistines don't quite understand what to do with that. So they're, they're just assuming right? these are multiple gods of the Israelites. So the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated, and they fled, everyone to his home. There was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel, 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Um, now, that's a wild story. I could be wrong about this, and you would think that doing this in podcast form, I would take the time to research this, but I didn't. Um, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that that is the only time that the Israelites went out to battle with the Ark of the Covenant there with them and lost. If it happened again, it might have only happened like one or two other times. It's very unusual for the Israelites to have the Ark of the Covenant with them and get defeated. There's a phrase in there as well, right? That the Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. You'll recall uh, from way back in, in Leviticus, when they're describing building the Ark of the Covenant, they talk about there's two cherubim, these winged angels on the top of the Ark. And what's really, the real idea is that the ark is like the footstool of God's throne. It is, it is this spot on earth where God himself is reaching down from the heavens. And so God's presence is literally right there above the ark. That's what they believe, and that's more or less what God tells them is true. This, of course, is why they have that thought to go and get the ark in the first place. And so on the one hand, it's already shocking and devastating to them that they lost this battle even though they had the ark with them. That alone is going to cause some amount of panic. But it's not just that they lose the battle. The ark gets captured by the Philistines. And Hophni and Phinehas, the, the two sons of the high priest, and, and Eli the high priest is old, so his sons are actually doing most of the work in the temple now. So they're their key religious leaders have now been captured, or actually they're killed. And the ark is gone. Now, Hophni and Phinehas weren't actually very good at being high priests. In fact, they were wildly corrupt. 
So this is sort of a blessing in disguise, but, but they wouldn't know this yet. But, but losing the battle and having the ark captured, this would have been devastating in every sense of the word. The ark is God's throne. It is God's presence. And they would have understood the capture of the ark, not just as their defeat in the battle, not just as the defeat of their army, but as the defeat of their God. That's how they would have interpreted this event, not just that their army lost the battle, but it looks to them in this moment like God himself has been defeated. Now, of course, they're wrong, but they don't know that yet. So it would look to the Israelites like their God has been defeated. And of course, it would look to the Philistines like they have defeated Israel's God. Which is precisely why they take the Ark of the Covenant and they place it in the temple of their God, or one of their gods, named Dagon. This is intended, it's like the ultimate humiliation. right? It's like they are saying, your God is now worshiping our God. It is a massive, massive insult. And it's also a very common practice in the ancient world. Um, multiple cities in the ancient Near East that, that served as sort of imperial or royal capitals, as they've dug up those cities, they have found in the archaeological ruins, they have found the statues of gods of people who were not from that city, uh, right? It happens in Babylon. It happens in the city of Susa, which was the capital of the Elamite Empire, and then the Persian Empire later on. Um, because what happened is that as those empires conquered other people, they would commonly go into the temples that they had built in their cities. They would take the statues of their gods and carry those statues back to their home base, basically, back to wherever their capital was. And it was... It was humiliating, and it was insulting, and it was also uh, kind of like a, a hostage situation, right? They are saying to them, look, we've got your God. So you have to do what we say now, because we have your God. And we can do with him what we want. So, you know, play nice or we're going to hurt him. Uh, very interesting way of looking at, at the world. And so that's kind of what the Philistines have done. They've taken the Ark of the Covenant. It's now in their temple and this naturally backfires spectacularly. Right? They come in the next day into their temple, literally the morning after they put the ark into their temple. They come back in and they find the statue of their God on the ground lying face down before the ark. And of course they just assume something happened, the statue fell over, so they stand the statue back up. And the next day, they come in, and their God's statue is not just lying face down in front of the ark, but it's now lying down on the ground, and the head and hands have been cut off. Now, they should have spotted the warning sign right there. Because what God is telling them is I don't need an army to beat you. 
They should have been terrified right then and there. Because what happens next is that the Philistines get a little taste, just a small taste, of what God did to the Egyptians when they wouldn't let the Hebrews go. God sends a series of horrible plagues into this Philistine city. And eventually they return the ark to Israel. God did not need the Israelites to beat the Philistines. God didn't need an army to beat the Philistines. And the message from God to his own people is clear. He's saying, I don't need you. You need me. I'm not a trophy to be trotted out when you want something. I am your God. Because remember, what did they do? They went and they grabbed the Ark of the Covenant and used it like a, like a totem or a trophy. This thing that, it, that hey, we've got this, now we're going to win. It's not all that different from when people today treat God like some sort of cosmic vending machine. Like, I can get what I want because I can just pray to God and God will give it to me, right? This is, this is a lot like the, the name it and claim it people. See, if you just pray with enough positive energy, God will give you whatever you want. That's not how it works. You don't get to control God. You don't get to use God as your totem, as your trophy, as your good luck charm. Because you are not in charge. God is in charge. This is a hard-learned lesson from the Israelites. Not only did they lose the battle, but God demonstrates to them very clearly that he can win those battles without their help, thank you very much. It's one of those lessons that they need to learn but they're really not going to learn it very quickly. This takes us up through the first seven chapters of, of First Samuel. Um, that's sort of chapters four through seven are that ongoing saga with the Philistines capturing the ark and then suffering all the plagues and then having to return it. And so then in chapter 8, we get this iconic moment where the Israelites demand a king. And here's sort of how that went down. I'll just read out of chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us, like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. 
Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also are they doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, No, but we are determined to have a king over us, so that we may also be like the other nations, and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. Whew, it's a lot, huh? And this is kind of, this is a, a moment that is, a, is difficult for us to understand often because, of course, if you read the book of Judges, there's so much happening in there. Uh, and there's that constant repeated frame of, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, or everyone did as they saw fit. Um, and it seems as though Judges is intending to set things up deliberately so that, so that it can be clear why Israel needed a king. But of course, the, that refrain in Judges is not talking about an earthly king, is it? It's actually talking about God, who was meant to be king over Israel. They've already rejected God's authority. They have rejected the king they were supposed to have. And what they're now asking for is... Uh, something that will be at best a parody of what the true king should be. And notice, of course, Samuel is, is a judge over Israel. He's arguably the, the best judge that Israel has ever had. He's actually successful and peaceful and holy. Um, and when he gets too old to do the job, he appoints his sons as judges over Israel, and they just don't do what they're supposed to do, right? They are corrupt, they're evil, it's not really clear what Samuel thinks of his sons. Although I imagine for any father it would be very difficult to come to grips with something like that. 
and even the holiest among us, even the most righteous among us would, would really struggle to acknowledge that kind of corruption in our children because of course we all love our children. Samuel loves his sons. So on the one hand, I'm sure that part of Samuel's reaction to the people coming and demanding a king is a level of, of personal pain. As he acknowledges that his sons have not turned out to be what he'd hoped they would be. But it seems odd still that, that God is, is telling the people that this king is not going to be all that great. Because if you think back to the books we've already read in the Bible, um, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has a whole spiel where he tells people, one day you're going to have a king. And when you get into the promised land, if you want to put a king over all the tribes, you can do that. So the, the provision for a king to rule over the people of Israel is already there in the covenant that they have made with God. The important thing is not necessarily the structure of the government of the people of Israel, but, but the understanding that that government is ultimately under the authority of God. In other words, God is not mad that they want a human king. God's problem is the reasons why they want a human king. They want a king so they'll be like everyone else. They want a king to go out before them in battle and lead them. Well, isn't that what they've been hoping God would do all this time? Isn't that what God has done every time they've won? See, but what they want is a king who isn't going to demand from them the same kinds of things that God is going to demand of them. They want a king, really, who will let them be like everyone else. And that's really what's at the heart of the matter. The king they have now, the God they worship, is not going to let them be like everyone else. And when they try to be like everyone else, he abandons them. But if they get a human king, maybe that guy will let us do whatever we want. And so the warning from God comes in, right? Telling them, hey, you know, if you... If you do this, right, here's, here's what's going to happen. This king, he's going to demand a tax from you. You're going to have to give up the best of your crops, the best of your livestock. You're going to have to pay a tax to him. And also, he's going to conscript your sons to serve in his armies. And there's that bit about they're going to run before his chariots. Well, the chariot is the safe place to be. The people running before the chariots, they are, they're the... The regular, they're the guys who soak up the damage before the chariots go into battle. That's who your son's going to be. That's where he's going to be in the battle. Not in the safe place where the king is, running out before him. He's going to take your daughters, and they're going to be his cooks and his bakers and serving in his home. Right? In other words... God is telling him, you think the king is going to let you do whatever you want to do, and that may be true in some ways, but the, the things he will impose on you are much worse and much harsher than whatever I, your God, would impose upon you. And if you'll recall, last week I mentioned 
There's two sources that have been blended together to make Samuel. And one of those sources is called the late source. And ironically, most of these early chapters of 1 Samuel, the beginning of the book, are from the late source. And the late source is written um, several centuries, actually, after the fact. It's written uh, after the kingdoms have split into two. It's written around the time that the northern kingdom is being conquered by Assyria. At this point in Israel's history, the monarchy has gone horribly, horribly wrong. They have had this long succession of just awful, evil kings who have done a terrible job of ruling the people. Things don't look good. The future looks bleak. And that source is extremely critical of the monarchy as a whole and very critical of the decision of the people of Israel that they make right here in this story. It's trying to highlight that this was ultimately a mistake. And at the same time, it can't have been too much of a mistake because, well, King David was pretty good and King Solomon was pretty good. And under their rule, Israel had peace and prosperity and the people were faithful and they upheld the covenant. It's really the only point in all of Israel's history where the people of Israel actually seem to have done a pretty good job of being faithful to their covenant with God. So which is right? Is, is the monarchy this horrible mistake that they've made? Or is it the thing that saved Israel from anarchy and chaos? And the answer is yes. It's both. It's both. It does both things. The monarchy unites the people of Israel, strengthens them, and for a while it will be a very good thing. And then it will turn sour. And like so many other things in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, it is a foretaste of things to come. It is a signpost pointing towards the future that God has, because of course it's pointing towards the future king, Jesus, who will become king of all, the, of all creation. The ideal king, whose reign was inaugurated 2,000 years ago. He already rules over us. And his kingdom is growing. And at the same time, the monarchy of ancient Israel is nothing more than a signpost. And, and its failures highlight exactly why we need Jesus in the first place. The failures of Israel's kings... And one of the interesting things about First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings is precisely that they don't hide the king's flaws. You go read the, the literature of any other ancient civilization, and when they talk about their kings, specifically the ones who they consider to be national heroes, you won't find one mention of any flaws that they have there. They are glowing reports, highlighting all the wonderful things they did all their successes in battles, talking about what a great ruler they were. Israel doesn't do that. I mean, it mentions those things, but it also talks about 
the, the flaws that they have. David is a very flawed figure. He makes all kinds of mistakes. So does Solomon. And it's those flaws, it's those setbacks, and the consequences that they lead to, right? The division of the kingdom, the civil wars. Those are the things which highlight why we need Jesus, why we need God himself to be our king, because no human government will ever be good enough. It reminds me of that Churchill quote, right, where, where Churchill says, you know, democracy is the absolute worst form of government there is, except for all those other forms of government. <laughs> you know, in other words, every, every attempt we make to make a good government, it's going to fall short of the ideal because we're human. David and Solomon were great kings. They were pretty much as good as it gets, and yet they still had enormous flaws and made huge mistakes because they were human. The monarchy did great things for Israel. It united the people. It drove back their enemies. It led to an era of economic prosperity and religious faithfulness, the likes of which the people of Israel will never see again. And it still failed because they were human. This story of the beginning of Israel's monarchy, of their transition from a tribal people into a true kingdom is just has that air of noble tragedy about it. Because you know how it all turns out. And that's kind of the point. And so Saul is picked to be the first king of Israel. And Saul is like, Saul is that guy who we'd all pick to be king, right? He, um, it, it describes him as, you know, standing a full head taller than any other man in Israel. Like he's the tallest guy in Israel. He's supposed to be just, you know, really handsome and, and you know, maybe he has those dashing good looks, right? We'll find out in later chapters he is just a fearsome warrior. He is ferocious in battle, right? He is, he is exactly who we would all pick to be king. Which is going to be a big contrast with David later on. David's not who you would pick to be king. David is a little shepherd boy from out in the fields. He looks scrawny and skinny and unimpressive. Right? Saul fights with a spear and armor and shield. David has a sling. Uh, you would never pick David to be king, and yet David ends up being the better king. Uh, that too is a lesson here, that God is the one who picked David. And, and in Saul, he picks the guy who we all would have picked anyway. Um, so Saul is nominated to be king. And actually, in the beginning of his reign, Saul is pretty good. Um, he, he's, he starts off fine and full of promise. And then he has this moment where he goes, he's leading the people of Israel out to battle as king. And the, the prophet Samuel tells him, okay, well, before you go into battle, I'm going to offer up a sacrifice to God so that God will bless you and you'll win the battle. And he tells him specifically, you wait for me to do it because God wants me to do it. And so in chapter 13, verse 8, he waited for seven days, the appointed time by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people began to slip away from Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the offerings of well-being. And he offered the burnt offering. 
As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to meet him and salute him. Samuel replied, What have you done? Saul replied, When I saw that the people were slipping away from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines were mustering, were mustering at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down upon me at Gilgal, and I have not entreated the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel left and went on his way from Gilgal. The rest of the people followed Saul to join the army. And they went up from Gilgal towards Gibeah of Benjamin. So what's Saul's mistake here? Well, he offers up a sacrifice, right? Only, only the priests and the pro- can offer a sacrifice. Same as one of the priests. Samuel has the authority to offer up a sacrifice. Saul does not. He's violated a core part of the covenant and he loses the kingdom. Things will spiral out of control after that. And God will shift his favor onto David. And so by now you've also read these stories of Saul and David. And again, what you have in these stories of Saul and David and this sort of unraveling of Saul, that is a prime example of the mixing of these two sources because the late source is highly critical of the monarchy, but the early source is written during the reign of King Solomon when things are great and the monarchy is awesome and they have a wonderful king. And so the early source is very, very complementary of the monarchy. And in the early source, Saul is a noble and tragic figure, while in the late source, Saul is an evil tyrant. Now, the one question we have this week is about Saul and David. And are these stories as, as you know, after David defeats Goliath and, and Saul brings him into his household and um, you know, David is winning all kinds of fame in Israel and becoming this huge heroic national figure. There are these stories about how Saul interacts with him and, and most of them are not good. But it will mention specifically at times the evil spirit from the Lord that will seize Saul and and kind of compel him to do things like throw his spear at David and that kind of stuff. And so someone asks, you know, what is that? What's going on with the evil spirit from the Lord? And it's a good question um, because no one wants to think about the possibility that God will send an evil spirit on you to control your actions. I think it's important to note that the evil spirit doesn't make Saul do anything he didn't want to do. In other words, he, in his heart, 
wanted to kill David. What this so-called evil spirit does is it compels him to try. At an op- and you, you can assume that he would have been waiting for a more opportune moment. Right? David is incredibly popular with the people of Israel. He's, he's like a national hero. If Saul kills him, that's going to be bad for everybody. So he has to wait to kill him until he gets like, until David screws up or something, right? I mean, that would be the politically smart thing to do, to wait until David's made some kind of major mistake. And killing him won't have the kind of blowback he would get from the public otherwise. You know, king does actually need the support of the people to rule, especially a brand new king like Saul, who was ruling over people who were not used to having a king. So he, he, Presumably, he's waiting until the right time to make a move against David. And what this spirit does is it compels him to act now. It reveals his true intentions. We don't know what would have happened if, it, if not for that evil spirit. Perhaps, perhaps he could have concealed what was in his heart long enough to actually get the opportunity to strike against David. And instead what happens is, because it becomes very clear to David that Saul intends to kill him, David is able to flee. In other words, it's not like God sent an evil spirit to make Saul evil. Saul made those choices on his own. All all that this evil spirit does, and it's not really clear, by the way, what the evil spirit is. It's not clear that this is supposed to be like a demon or who knows what else because evil spirit is kind of vague and there's not really any description of it in the Bible. It seems almost like Saul is just sort of losing his mind. In any case, What's going on is Saul is compelled somehow, some way, to try and kill David in a way that is kind of sloppy and, and doesn't really have any chance of success, but, but that will still very clearly indicate to David what is in Saul's heart and what Saul is planning to do. And the end result is that David recognizes what's about to happen to him. He sees that he's not safe around Saul anymore. And so he's going to flee for his life. And so that's what's going on with those stories about the evil spirit in Saul. It's not that God is turning him evil or that God is making him do things he wouldn't otherwise want to do. It's rather that God is forcing Saul to reveal his true intentions. He's not allowing him to play the savvy, conniving politician who will wait until the opportune moment to remove a threat to his power, which is what he was trying to do. So that's it for this week's folks. I'm going to preach again on Sunday and preaching on David and Goliath, which I'm looking forward to. It's a fun story, I think. Um, And I will be back next week with another one of these podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any questions you'd like me to answer in the midst of them, email them in, put them on the church Facebook page, And we will make sure to include as many of those as possible. Thanks, and goodbye.